welcome into Natchez Glen House Stories number, this is 14. I mean, we're just going up in numbers every week, people. It's like there's a pattern or something involved in this. Here is an interesting thing about my guest this week. Linda Chalker Scott and I did a podcast before anyone was podcasting almost 11 years ago. And this is where I want to start, Linda. A lot of when we talked 10 or 11 years ago, and your work is centered around busting up gardening myths that have been around forever, like these fables and mythology attached to them. Did we solve all the problems 11 years ago, Linda? I I don't know if we did or not. How do you feel we've done 11 years later as a general gardening horticulture world? Do Are we still hearing a lot of these same myths that are out there? Well, some of them are going away slowly. Some of them refuse to die. Those are the ones I call zombie myths. And then there's a whole bunch of new ones. So, um, you know, if I was worried about job security, uh, (laughs) I think think I'm set to go for a couple hundred years. You, You mentioned that there are new ones. And let me throw this at you. And this is something that has been a continuing topic for me. There has been in real increase in online workshops and in-person workshops. But one of the things that concerns me a little bit about them, and a little bit might be an understatement on my part, Linda, they're very costly, some of them, uh, thousands of dollars. And yet I don't see a lot of just fundamentals The thing that these workshops are attracting with are flower photos, real aspirational dreamer talk, which there's nothing wrong with that. That's one of the magics of gardening. But are you concerned like I am that even though those workshops may look pretty on social media, that maybe they lack a little of like the core fundamentals you really need to be a successful gardener or small flower farm or whatever you're attempting to be? I think that's a really astute observation, and while you were talking about it, I kind of came up with a an inverse relationship in that the more expensive a workshop, the less educational value it is. <laughs> yeah. And I say that because, you know, you can go on and you can get extension, you know, university extension workshops, or you can do, um, you know, online uh, university courses, and they're much cheaper, and you know you're going to get good information there. Um, but a lot of these other ones, I think you're exactly right. You know, it, it appeals to, um, you know, ancient knowledge sometimes, um, you know, magical properties, uh, that kind of thing, which, you know, has a real emotional appeal, but it's not going to really provide you with anything that's good science. When do you think, and I've noticed this, and, and one of the things that people don't know, and I, I actually owe a huge uh, thanks to Linda, that very early on, in my vegetable gardening life 12, 13 years ago, I found a lot of Linda's material. And it was dramatically helpful, I think, in shaping the way I viewed a lot of these fundamentals from the very beginning. So a big thank you to right off the bat, Linda, on that, that it was a great entry to me to look at things probably from a different perspective than if I wouldn't have found your material. Oh, I'm glad to hear that. Yeah. And and I think we, you know, I I talk about here at Natchez Glen that we have magical woodland fairies that help grow things. And it is, there is a whimsy to plants and gardening and horticulture in the natural world. But what I see here is there's been almost 
a dogmatic group of people that have evolved over the last 10 or 15 years. And they are a very vocal group of people. And yet, a lot of what they believe is still rooted in a lot of very anecdotal information. You and I are going to talk about compost tea here in a minute, Linda, <laughs> that there's a lot of this out there. And now what I, what I, I don't, I'm not, and what I'm asking you here is if you're noticing this as well, that in this last, you know, the last time we talked 11 years ago, that that crowd has picked up a little bit of steam too. And, you know, they do have this very, this is the way you do it. And if you spray a chemical in your garden, you will be vilified and you will wear a uh, scarlet letter the rest of your life. Have you picked up on some of that? Yeah, I have. And I think that, you know, just because it's so much easier to um, things online, especially with, with pictures and things, because now it's not just, you know, emotional language that attracts people. It's, you know, idyllic pictures and and or, or photos of you know giant flowers and produce and stuff and and it's it's all of those things um, now that are appealing to you besides just words and I think that's part of it um, and again I think that it's so much easier to connect with um, gardeners who are looking for something you know some magic bullet that it's it's easy to find suckers you know I'm sorry, sorry to use that phrase but it is you know I think I may have told you. Years ago, that one of my um, um, arborist colleagues uh, liked to use to say that once the, uh, the Food and Drug Administration was formed, that all the snake oil salesmen moved into garden products. And I think it's exactly right because there is no regulatory agency for things that are sold to gardeners. No, and that is something, you know, funny story about this. So um, in the years I was building out the gardens here, I used to, of course, Linda, have huge piles of arborist wood chips delivered. Yes. And they would be sitting out there. And I mean, uh, Linda, when, when there was, if you were ever wondering, is there a person out there that was reading your material and was living it daily? I was that person, <laughs> just to let you know. I oh, believe good. at one point, I believe at one point I had well over 500 cubic yards of wood chips. I mean, with, with, that's not even an exaggeration. I might be low <laughs> on the number. And I had all these wood chips piled up in the front. And we're going to talk about this in a technical way here in a minute, people, as you hear Linda and I get giddy over wood chip talk. So I had the wood chips and an arborist came to my door, came knocking. And he goes, um, what are you doing with all these wood chips? And I said, well, I mulch with them. And Linda, he looked like I had just told him I had stolen his second, first, and third born children. <laughs> he was like, Oh, you can't do that. It robs nitrogen. It just goes off, right? All the typical, anecdotal, non-proven everything that you have heard for decades and I had heard throughout that time. And just without hesitation, I told him, I said, have you ever heard of Linda Chalker Scott in any of her work from Washington State? And he goes, no. And I go, well, there's the problem. And immediately he left, he researched, and he came back like probably a year later after that. I was like, yeah, you really, that all changed my, inf I didn't know any of that. It really changed my mind. Wow. And it goes to show you, and just as a listener, people, even people that walk around with the title of arborist weren't very informed on a lot of these subjects. And they were walking around with a lot of this mythology. 
Let's talk wood chips specifically, Linda. Has that crusade paid the most dividends for you? Have you seen that? I I mean, of all of the things that you and I will talk about with this, it feels like that's the one that people should be able to wrap their minds around. That one is probably the most successful one. And it's a combination of, you know, the good science getting out there, the arborists becoming more informed, um, and then people seeing the success from it. Um, you know, all you have to do is tell people that if you put down a nice, uh, thick layer of, of arborist wood chips, your, your weed problem is going to be almost non-existent. And in fact, a lot of people find that their new chore is pruning because things grow so well that they have to actually do more pruning. Um, and so I think that's exactly right. I think that people have seen that, you know, the myths have been busted in terms of nitrogen robbing and the issues with what happens if you have diseased wood that you chip, is that going to spread disease? And we know the answer to that is no. So I, I think that seeing the results, seeing the science, seeing photographs on social media or wherever, and then having just word of mouth, arborists, master gardeners like you that have podcasts, um, you know, they see this resource, it makes sense to them um, that when they look at a forest floor that it's covered with this thick dust layer. And so that translates well. And so when the science matches up with what they see anecdotally happening in the forest, that's when you see good results. Let's tackle another one here. And after you and I talked, I'll fill in some of the gaps of my career for Linda. I took over a really large nursery in Oregon for uh, several years. And we had you know, hundreds of acres of interesting, rare trees that we were growing. And I got to travel around the country and visit with independent garden centers. And that was an interesting experience for me, Linda. I will be polite and say that. But here's one of the things that kept popping up on my radar. Low maintenance, low maintenance, low maintenance, low maintenance. It became a mantra of almost every garden center I went into. This is going to be a complicated question for you to field. Why do you think that started? Besides, obviously, it was an easy sales tactic. But do you also feel that maybe that hurt horticulture and gardening overall? That for this long decades period, people would just sort of walk in and they'd say, oh, I'm looking for something like this. And immediately they were like, oh, yeah, that's low maintenance. Buy that. This is low maintenance. Buy that. Where do you think it came from? Do you think it's going away? Do you, do you see that same misstep maybe by the industry? Yeah, I think there's a, it's a complicated question. I think it's kind of a complicated answer. Um, and you're exactly right. That's happened. I think part of the reason is has to do with and I'm not going to call them gardeners, I'm going to call them homeowners because the gardeners are a different breed. Um, homeowners increasingly see landscapes as a design element. They don't see it as a living, dynamic, changing you know, group of plants. They see it as decoration. So they want something that's low-maintenance because they just want to have this picture-perfect thing that you see in all these you know, HGTV garden shows, You know, the one that doesn't exist anymore with curb appeal. It used to drive me nuts. You know, they'd go and they'd you know, pop all the stuff in the ground and take pictures and doesn't look great, but they'd never go back, you know, a month later or a year later. And so people got the feeling that, yeah, you could do this. You could have this wonderful landscape and you don't have to do anything because we'd rather be doing other things and taking care of a garden. So, And I think that the part of the reason that is, is because there's less and less basic science information in, in education, you know, at any level. 
And if you don't have uh, people understanding, you know, how, how plants work, then they don't understand that they're going to change and you have to do certain things to make a landscape look the way you want it to. So, you know, gardeners know this. You know, gardeners, kinda, you know, have their heads wrapped around that. But homeowners who aren't gardeners don't. And I think that's why you've got this prevalence of, of people who just think you can do this, you know, low or no maintenance gardening, which is, you know, just a joke. If there are things you can do to make it less maintenance. And like we were just talking about using wood chips, you know, you're keeping the weeds down so you don't have as much weeding. But there's always other things to do. You know, you can't just leave it alone. You have to keep your eyes open and address problems when they come up. It is terrifying and true what you just said, Linda, that science in general has become less prevalent. And as you were saying that, it it did fill in a bit of a, a thought for me as well, that what we're seeing, again, getting back to the workshop kind of commentary too, is that some of these just very anecdotal practices that are not rooted in any trialing, in any science, in any peer review. And in many cases, they don't even make any kind of um, just cognitive logic sense that it's just somehow magically going to happen has sort of gotten in there quite a bit. Do you feel as if the social media, and this is another big, broad question for you, Linda, you have people like yourself and the Garden Professors Facebook group. Has it been good or bad? What is your take on so on, on general, not maybe in just the gardening, the gardener category, but in general, has it been a, a both sides now Joni Mitchell kind of thing, or have you seen the scale go one way or the other? Well, I think initially the scale went one way, and the one way it went was the bad way in terms of anybody putting themselves out there as an expert on anything, and people just kind of you know finding something that fit their worldview and and kind of going with it. And I think there's been you know real alarm among. Um, especially scientists who have some kind of interest in outreach education to, to try to combat that. So, you know, if you spend any time on Facebook or looking at, at blogs, things, you can find, you know, sites that, that have good entomology information or good plant ID information or good disease information. Um, and, and that goes far beyond gardening, of course, as you were saying. You, if you're careful and you curate your sources carefully, and you, you know, have, have some scientific literacy skills in terms of being able to vet, you know, who the people are who are professing to be experts, you know, what their background is, um, you can find some really good sites. And I'm really grateful for those sites because, heck, I don't know everything. I certainly don't know much about, you know, insects and disease and other things that affect plants. But, but knowing those, where those places are and that they exist really makes it, uh, you know, easy to give people, you know, free um, well-researched information. So, you know, you're talking about workshops and stuff, and, and I submit that if you're really careful with what you do in terms of following Facebook groups and other social media sites, that you can cobble together a really nice set of, of sites that can give you that information for absolutely nothing. So here's one of the topics that we're going to tackle, and this has driven me crazy over these last 10 years, Linda, and we should have talked about this before this. Native versus non-native plants. <laughs> there are people in this. Here, here's what I saw. Here's what I saw going to garden centers across the country. There was a, a, this was the sales pitch for any of you that are unaware of it. This was the sales pitch. Well, these plants grow here natively. 
Therefore, they will have less disease, less pests, and will overall perform better for you than this non-native plant. Now, the definition of what's a native and what's a non-native was a little dicey at times, but that was the sales pitch. And that also, by the way, they'd be lower maintenance. <laughs> Clarify this for us a little bit, Linda, as far as your take on native versus non-native plants. Okay, well, I'm going to do it in two parts. And the first part will be relatively short because it's just, it's, it's just a fact. And the fact is, is that there is no scientific definition of native. It's all completely subjective and it completely varies depending on where you are. So, you know, those of, those of us in the U.S., and I imagine that's probably where most of your listeners are, but not all of them, um, are used to the definition being, you know, pre-European settlement as being what's native. But the problem is, is that sure doesn't fit for Europe and it doesn't fit for Asia or Australia. So it's all different. It's all these different time scales. And so you, you don't have a good science-based definition of what native is. So that's the first problem. That's probably the underlying problem. Uh, the second part, which is probably of more interest to gardeners, is whether or not native plants are better suited you know, for, for garden landscapes than non-natives. And I would say that if you are living in a completely rural, you know, untouched by human impact except for you, living situation and, and you were uh, using native plants, that, that probably would work just fine. Um, however, most of us aren't. and Most of us don't have native soils. Most of us have soils that have been impacted by construction and other activities. And most of us, if we live where there used to be a dense forest, there's not a dense forest anymore. And a lot of those native species will not do well in urbanized conditions. And that just means any kind of development it doesn't have to be, a, you know, a city, but any place where there's been any kind of change to the, the plant community, the soil structure, it's not native anymore. It's not natural, and a lot of times native plants won't do well there. And there's lots of great examples of native plants that don't do well in such situations. So, and, and then you have to look at places like, I don't know, New Mexico. Are you going to tell them that they can't have trees <laughs> because there aren't any native trees there? You know, we have we have to become somewhat rational in how we address using plants. And by no means am I suggesting that people use invasive species. But there are a lot of what you can call well-behaved species that aren't aggressive, that don't tend to, you know, overtake landscapes, and they can have really good uh, function um, and be aesthetically pleasing. So because this is so prevalent, and you were talking about being dogmatic before, and it's one of those dogmas that people believe strongly in native plants. And anything that challenges that belief is met with a knee-jerk reaction. And see, this is what's dangerous because, you know, these same people will say, well, you know, they're following the science of, you know, natives and non-natives. But yet science changes and our understanding of science changes. And you have to be open to change. So if you're going to be stuck in this dogmatic approach, then you're not being scientific. You're not being objective. So what I did, because this was becoming a bigger and bigger issue, especially um, looking at woody plants, trees and shrubs, I did a literature analysis, um, I think in 2015, looking at the literature on native woody species and non-native but non-invasive woody species to see if it made any difference in terms of 
you know, the birds and the insects and other things that would live in those landscapes. And it turns out that it makes absolutely no difference if a species is native or not. It's the structure and function that they, that they you know, perform in the landscape. The exception to that, of course, is there's always going to be some specialist species, generally insects, that require some particular plant. And that's, you know, that's going to be true. You're always going to have those types of species. But by and large, if you have good vertical structure and a bunch of other things in terms of wide diversity of plant material, you're going to have a biologically diverse landscape. So all do you think there was do you think there was a moment, Linda, as you're saying this, where I had asked you through email, this the thing that maybe people aren't paying attention to, and maybe you need to amp up your cynical meter a little <laughs> bit with this topic for people, is most of the people that were touting native plants just so happened to be selling native plants? Well, there is that. I will say in their defense that there are some times when native plants are required, and that's if you're doing ecological restoration. You have to use natives. That's the whole point of doing restoration is putting it back to a native plant palette. And I, I do ecological restoration myself, so I, I get that. Um, and I'm not saying you shouldn't use natives. I think there's a lot of good natives um, to use. And in fact, I have a new book coming out this spring that's on gardening with native plants of the Pacific Northwest. So this will really throw you know people that believe I'm non-native, you know, non-native plant person uh, for a loop because I have to like native plants. But you have to be smart in your choices, and you can't choose things that aren't going to do well in your conditions because that makes them more susceptible to disease and to pests. And then they're not such great choices. So, as you mentioned, there's also this baseline that people seem to struggle with. And one of the things I often say to people I run into, which, by the way, I've been blocked by several people on Instagram, Linda, (laughs) on some of these varying subjects. So I wear a lot of these as like badges of honor now. Everyone that I get, I'm like, yes, another one. (laughs) So there is an inherent thought to me that is a gardener, a farmer, whatever we want to call ourselves. When we plant something, it's not natural at the very beginning. That choice, that plant would not be there without our intervention. So if you want to go down this very dogmatic road with it, how do you come to grips with that from the very beginning that we're intervening here? And it sort of throws off this very super theologian kind of approach that some of these people have. Well, I think you've touched on something really important and something that um, I've been thinking about for a long time and I don't talk about too much because it's not strictly speaking gardening. But the fact is, is that people have an unfortunate um, ability to separate themselves from nature. So somehow, you know, that whatever humans do is bad, and I don't want to talk about climate change or anything like that, but just, you know, whatever we do is bad and separate from what would happen naturally. And the fact is, is that plant species especially are very adapted to different ways of dispersing themselves. So, you know, the fact that we bring in plants and plant them doesn't make us bad or evil. I mean, <laughs> it's, we're, we're a we're a, a natural species on the planet. You know, if, if aliens were coming and doing it, that might be different. But if we're going to talk about planet Earth, you know, we are part of nature. And so, yes, we can, we can speed things up, and that's sometimes a bad thing. But the fact that we choose to plant 
um, uh, a non-native species. Uh, there's all kinds of species that manage to colonize um, remote areas through other vectors, whether it's birds or you know mammals or whatever. We we're not special in any sense, other than we tend to speed some processes up, and that can sometimes be bad. I think you are completely correct in the fact that we have, I did a rules for gardening podcast. Listen to it, people. I believe it's story number two. My comment there was nature is simply indifferent. It is neither good nor bad towards us. It's just what it is. Exactly. Our, what we plant is just, it, it, it really is also indifferent sometimes. It doesn't matter. As much as I don't want it to be 72 degree, degrees here and see peonies pushing out of the ground and still having there be a chance for an April frost, Linda, it doesn't really matter how I feel about it. It's not taking my opinion into consideration in the weather climate. We'll transition to this next subject, Linda. And I know you and I have probably seen a lot of the same thing over the last 10 years. There was a moment where people were going out and buying fish aquarium pumps, a five-gallon bucket, buying compost, and were being told that the great elixir of compost tea would solve all your gardening problems. Diseases would be gone. Your plants would grow to be Jack and the Beanstalk size. Your family would love you more. All of this was happening in association with compost tea. Was this fact or was this fiction? Where did we end up with compost tea? Well, as you might remember, when we talked 11 years ago, that compost tea was the first myth I busted. And it's still out there. It is the queen of zombie myths. It will not die. And I think that the, the main reason is, is, is because it's called compost tea. It's not called compost leachate. If you were told to do all, all the things you were talking about and we're going to brew our own compost leachate, well, leachate sounds like leeches. It's not one of those words that is appealing. But tea, you know, I'm a tea drinker. Compost tea sounds really nurturing and cozy and, and great, doesn't it? So, yeah, it's, it's very appealing on the emotional level. And then all the rest of this, all the trappings of, you know, using special recipes and mixing your own brew and, and then have these magical properties. I mean, it gets to the point where people don't care if it has magical properties. They just love the fact that they're doing something that, that, that they swear works. So there's been a lot of research that's, that's happened since you and I talked last. And we're still the same place. There is no consistent, reliable research that shows that it works. The reason that you can't get consistent, reliable research is because every single time you brew up a batch of compost tea, it's not like a recipe. It's not, you know, like making a cake. What you end up with is a, a bucket full of different organisms that are at different levels, and it's a dynamic population, and sometimes they're battling each other, and you, you can't ever get a consistent batch. So you're never going to have consistent results. And so that's problem number one, no consistency. So sometimes it might work, sometimes it doesn't. And if it does work, how do you, how do you know what's actually working? You don't know because you don't know what's actually in the batch. It's just, it's a black hole in terms of the knowledge. So there was, there were seems like it was, and as you were talking about the naturalistic element to it, you know, the word holistic mm-hmm. has become a little bit of a dangerous word occasionally. Yes. 
And this is compost tea falls right into that. You're completely right. I can see there being a very holistic tea shop with a particular section where they sell compost <laughs> tea and everybody's, you know, I, you know, they're romanticizing it as this great, powerful thing. Do you also over this last period of time, and I don't know if I want to put a date on it completely, but let's maybe call it 2008-ish, right in there, where there was a real movement to vilify traditional agriculture and then almost by proxy horticulture. And it felt like that gave a lot of momentum to things like compost tea. That's an interesting observation. And I wouldn't be surprised. And I think a lot of it has political undertones, which we don't have to get into. But I think that's where a lot of this comes from, is, you know, people being unhappy with what's happening politically, you know, for whatever reason. And we, you know, we, I think we'd say and agree that, you know, politics has just gotten more contentious. It doesn't matter what side you're on. It's just worse and worse. And so people are looking for, you know, something that's simpler, something that's natural, something that makes them feel good, and something that makes them feel good about their garden. So they turn to this. And the problem is, is it doesn't work, and it's incredibly resource-intensive. And so I always fight this particular battle on two levels. One is that it's not a green product. Um, you have to be using energy to aerate. Um, supposedly, if you're doing this, you have to buy molasses and these other additives, and you're supposed to send it off and have the soil biology checked so you, you know what organisms are in there, what difference that makes, I have no idea. And spending all this time and money and resources on this product that has no demonstrated value. So the other part, the other way I battle it besides this unsustainability and, and you know, kind of resource draining um, method is to say, you know, use compost, put it down and let nature brew the tea. And I can't, I wish I could take credit for coming up with that, but it was one of my uh, colleagues who, who came up with that. And I think it's great. I like to use the emotional language in a positive way, but it also matches with the science. So, you know, yeah, um, compost, you know, slowly uh, water goes through and leaches nutrients out of the soil. Um, the microbes are there. And then the thir- that's the third thing that I battle this on, is that compost tea is just water and a very weak solution of nutrients and a bunch of microbes. So now what you've done is you strip the microbes away from their food source. So what are the heck are they supposed to eat? You know, if you spray them onto a bare, lifeless soil, there's nothing there for them to eat. There's no organic material. They've got to have the compost to do their job. And do you feel that everything we tell people to do, Linda, is just more work? That's the other thing about the compost tea, what you just said. People, go buy some compost. Top dress your plants with it. Done. Compost tea. Go to the pet store. Go to the hardware store. Go to the grocery store for molasses. Get a brewer. Get a thermometer. Get some other things. Send a sample of it off. Have your doctor. I mean, what are we expecting people to do? Embrace this hobby with fervor or go like, man, you need like a bunch of things to do this. It just feels so against what we, what so many people are saying they want to do, which is get people interested in it, but we're giving them this laundry list of things to go buy. Yeah, and, it's, and uh, you know, it's. I think it's just people wanting to do something that they that they believe is somehow magical. And you know, compost and wood chips are not sexy, and they're free, which is also not sexy. 
it seems like the, the more expensive something is, the more people want it. So you can provide something that is unmatched in terms of uh, value to soil health, and that's wood chips and compost. And it doesn't matter that it's free and that it's the best thing you can do because somebody is going to want to spend money and time finding magic. And, they're, you know, if, if they've, again, if they have a belief system, a, a particular dogma, there is no amount of talking that you and I can do that's going to change their minds until they decide to try to become more objective. Let me spring this on you. This is my current issue. So over developing Natchez Glen into this like powerhouse of flower cutting, one of the products I see almost, almost every small boutique flower farm use are polypropylene weed fabric. And forever, it has irked me because it is sold as part of the concept of why they use it is is it a it's an organic methodology for weed suppression where do you land on this topic linda it's a little difficult for me because i feel like are we really calling polypropylene landscape fabric a green product now i mean is that where we're going with that where do you land on the weed fabric in those kind of settings I hate weed fabric. I hate it anywhere. <laughs> I don't like it at all. It's one of my least favorite products, and not just because it's, you know, it, not organic in terms of, of its, um, its manufacture. It's, you know, it's a synthetic product, but more importantly is what it does. So, you know, people talk about putting it down to smother weeds. And so I asked them to think about the verb they've just used. Smothering is not a good thing for your soil. Because there's more in your soil than weeds. You know, there's microorganisms, there's earthworms, there's roots of desirable plants. And yes, what, what uh, fabric does is it reduces gas movement through the soil and it reduces water movement through the soil. And even though, you know, on the packaging it says that it's permeable, it's permeable for about 30 seconds because all those holes get filled up soil and then you've got, you know, a barrier. It, it's like using plastic sheeting. There's, there's no movement through it. And we've actually just finished some research that we'll be publishing where we, we looked at the um, diffusion coefficient through different types of mulches. So in other words, how quickly um, carbon dioxide can move in or out. And we found, of course, that wood chips was the best in terms of not interfering too much, followed by cardboard, followed by weed fabric, followed by plastic. So, and this whole difference was by orders of magnitude. So, um, cardboard was 10 times worse than wood chips, and weed fabric was 100 times worse. So, if can you, you can, can you take a second here? And, and, and for all of you listening, this is why I love Linda Chalker Scott. <laughs> this subject for me, Linda. So, I don't want to say I'm in a war but maybe we'll call it a battle at least with some of these people. I have a real issue here. There are so many people that are leveraging the phrases organic, natural in what they're growing. And then they, they show the photo of the weed fabric. Then they talk about them being experts 
on the subject and maybe, in fact, then offering $2,000 online workshops, Linda. (laughs) I want you from a real approachable scientific perspective. Give us the, the, the verses. When you don't use landscape fabrics of any kind, what happens? And if you use wood chips or a compost as your top dressing for weed suppression, tell us what happens there. And then tell us what happens when you do use the weed suppression fabric or the landscape fabric. Okay. And so I'm going to put this in the context of a home gardener landscape and not crop production because I don't think that, and that's a, that's a completely different kind of agriculture. And I'm guessing that probably most of your listeners are more interested in what they're doing at home rather than doing it for a business, right? Well, talk on that too. Talk about it. Like if you, cause a lot of, you know, what I do here is like boutique flower farming. Mm-hmm. And there are a lot of people that are aspirational in that category that listen along with home gardeners. But I, I believe what you're going to tell us is it's essentially the same. There's not a lot of difference. I mean, there's a scale issue as far as weed suppression goes in large scale agriculture. But what we're still primarily talking about is like two acres or less. We're not at big horticulture scale or agriculture scale, even in those cases. Oh, yeah. that's And that's what I meant. You know, the big, the big acres and acres and acres. Okay, so if you use, um, and we'll say first off that bare soil is not a good thing because we all know that. So we're gonna we're going to, you know, stipulate that we have to have a mulch of some sort. What research has shown is that when you have a coarse, chunky mulch, you know, three dimensional type of mulch like wood chips, or if you happen to be someplace where you know in a drier climate you have you know rock of some sort or something that is is three dimensional that you have better water and, and gas movement. What that means for the soil is it's going to have better tilt, um, so it's better aerated, better drainage. That means less root diseases. It means better root growth. It means uh, you know more diverse microorganisms, you know, the beneficial ones as opposed to the pathogens. It's just a better soil environment. When you put on something that's a two-dimensional mulch, cardboard, newspaper, Worse yet, um, landscape fabric, and worst of all, plastic, you interfere with that. And when you interfere with the ability of oxygen to get in the soil and water to get in the soil, then the organisms that actually create the tilth, you know, the mycorrhizae, the fine roots, the earthworms, um, they don't do well. So you end up having this, this hard, compacted um, material that is, that is not... Um, going to be full of beneficial microbes. That's where the, you know, the, the pathogenic ones do better because it's anaerobic. And you just have an impaired system. Now, you know, some people use fabric or plastic or whatever to, you know, for walkways and stuff. And there's, I, I don't like it. Um, there's better things you can use, but I understand, you know, kind of the convenience of doing it. A lot of people just use it temporarily, um, you know, as they're getting things planted and then they take it up. So I'm, you know, I I'm, I'm a person who never says never. I mean, I would, I personally would never use it, but I can see that there might be, you know, some very limited and very temporary use. But in terms of being sustainable, in terms of being long term, you want something that you can, uh, that you don't have to uh, take up, that will just become naturally part of the system. And this is what, of course, organic mulches do, like wood chips, is they slowly decompose. And they form their own layer of compost, and you just put more on, and they just form their own layer of compost. So that is sustainable. That is long term, and you're going to just have a healthier soil. So can you and I 
play a little bit of a backseat plant game here. This past year, in big chunks of the country, it was a little bit of a, a wetter year, specifically up in the, in the Northeast, uh, Pennsylvania and New York State through there. There were a lot of dahlia, specifically I'll speak to, growers who were suffering from a lot of tuber rot throughout this period of time. Now, here's where we see SI at Linda. <laughs> Most of the ones I was seeing having a lot of problems also had landscape weed fabric. Could we make a bit of an assertion there and say that there may have been some kind of impact going on in those type conditions where clearly the landscape fabric was not helping the situation? It's interesting that you say that because that's exactly the reason why we did the research that we did that I was just talking about in terms of the diffusion coefficients with these various mulches. And we got funding from our, our state um, Department of Ag, which is funded through the nurseries um, in terms of this particular grant program because we said this very thing that if you're using you know, these, these materials like landscape fabrics or plastics, you may be contributing to diseases of your plants that are there. So we wanted to show, you know, or, or find out what, what the differences were with these materials in terms of gas and water movement. So, yeah, absolutely. Which is fascinating to me, people. You know, really, can we stop with this whole thing? I mean, doesn't the DuPont family have enough money at this point? I mean, did you see Foxcatcher? That movie was creepy. <laughs> Let's move on to another subject here that I think is still terrifying. <laughs> To me and Linda, I just saw it like three or four weeks ago. And we're going to go to woody shrubs and trees here for a second. There was a landscape company. Now, this was a landscape company. Let me, let me put this out there. This was a company that you would pay to install a tree in your home landscape and or garden and or whatever. It was a bald and burlap tree. For those of you who don't know, this is a tree that is dug. It's root ball. It's soil. It's dug out of the ground. Then a large piece of burlap is wrapped and tied around it. That's what holds the soil in place. Then that is how it is shipped and transported. However, they took the tree. They dug a hole straight down, about two, three feet straight down, cylinder-shaped people. Then I saw them take compost and just pour compost all around the root ball of the tree. And then just, that was it. They dropped the tree in the hole, filled it all in with compost, walked away. There are so many things wrong there, Linda. I don't even know where for us to start, but <laughs> there hit me with this subject first because I think this is still probably the one that shakes people's minds. That it, putting all this compost around this root ball is not helping this tree at all. And that's just exactly right. So what you have to do when you're planting a tree in, in your landscape is acknowledge that whatever soil is there is the soil you are stuck with. So if you have a naturally clayey soil, you need to choose a species that will tolerate those conditions. So plant selection is paramount. So we'll, we'll assume that you already know that, and um, then you get your, get your tree. So if you put something in the backfill, besides the tree roots, you are creating these discontinuities, these barriers to, again, water and oxygen movement and root movement, for that matter. So what happens is that 
when water moves across these types of soil, so let's say it's moving through compost, it's going to run into the native soil and it's going to stop moving. We stop moving that direction. It's going to start going other directions and it creates a perched water table. So in, the, in terms of the tree you're talking about, it's going to create a bathtub effect. So that water is going to pour in there through the compost and it's going to hit that barrier, which is the native soil, and then it's going to start backing up. So you're going to have a drowned root ball. So it'll die pretty quickly. There's so many reasons that tree's going to die anyway. So that's, that's lesson number one is you never put anything into the backfill except the soil that came out of it. It's interesting how people have so little faith in the actual soil that they have. That is one thing that strikes me when I was traveling, that no matter where you go, no one thought they had good weather or good soil, Linda. I know. No one. <laughs> it doesn't matter where you go in the world. Despite the fact that everywhere we go, there's somehow plants growing, no one has faith in that. Everyone is just like, ah, my weather, the worst. My soil, the worst. Didn't matter. Talk to that subject for a second. As I get a lot of questions about this, and obviously... Uh, a lot of people that follow me on social media, some of them happen to be Southeast-based, where we have this really typically a clay composition soil. When I was in Connecticut for the two-year excursion, we had incredibly sandy soil in that region of Connecticut. Give me sort of the Reader's Digest version of soil composition pluses and minuses of like a sandy soil versus a clay soil. Well, neither extreme is good. Um, sandy soils are great because they have such good drainage, but they have absolutely no ability to hold nutrients. So they're very nutrient-poor soil. So if you're in Florida, you know, where the soils are very sandy, um, you know, you're constantly having to add organic matter to the top just to get something in there for, for, for the plants. And so it's pretty high maintenance to deal with a sandy soil. A clay soil um, has, you know, very reduced water movement. It's not well drained. But because clay has a negative charge associated with its particles, it's able to bind nutrients and hold them there. And then plants are able to take them up. So clay soils are very nutrient rich. So ideally, of course, is a loam of some sort, this mixture of sand, silt, and clay. But, and oftentimes people actually have a sandier soil than they think. I can't tell you how many people I've talked to who say, I hate my soil. It's clay. Nothing, you know, nothing grows in it. Nothing moves through it. And then once you do something like, like mulch it and do some um, uh, you know, planting afterwards, then you've got a completely different soil because what, what it was was compacted. So I see a lot of people, especially in, you know, in, in developed areas where they're just not able um, to, to see that they've got a, actually a decent soil, it's impaired. And so what you have to do is fix that impairment by mulching. And you'd be surprised how quickly a soil regains tilth once you put down a protective mulch. Explain that factor to people. That there is a, and, and I wanted to bridge us into pH, which is another thing that I think is a, the amount of questions I get on pH, because this is a big <clears throat> thing, right? When people buy a plant, Linda, you know, mm -hmm. prefers a pH of, and I don't even think people understand what a pH means to a plant. It's just this sort of number that they hear. It likes acid. It likes alkalinity. And they don't have a knowledge base of what it actually means to have a plant that likes this or doesn't like that. So let's break this into two topics. Number one, walk us through 
when we talk about those soil composition differences, which usually are associated with a pH difference, what does it mean if my plant ha- likes a more acid-based soil, but yet I have a more alkaline soil? Okay, so if if you do that, and we've got the same situation in, in my state, you know, on the wet side of the mountains, we're very acid, and on the dry side of the mountains, we're much more alkaline. So if you really want a nice, you know, tree or shrub, well, probably shrub, that has drastically different uh, pH requirements, and those are pretty easy to find, you know, if they really truly are drastically different. I always suggest putting them into a big container instead because it's a lot easier to manage the pH of a container. You can't change the pH of your soil. You can't. I mean, you, you can do it temporarily, but it's, it's a nonstop thing. You have to keep on adding sulfur or whatever it is you're adding to change the pH. And, you know, that's not necessarily a good thing to do. So what I try to get people to think about is, you know, rather than growing something that obviously isn't native there if the pH isn't right, um, find something else that has similar characteristics that will tolerate this, the native soil pH. Or if you really, really have to have the plant, have it in a container so you can, you can control the pH better because a small volume of soil is very easy to change. Large volume, not so much. Let's move to this topic. This, uh, and you and I are going to, this, we should make a, a pledge on this. We have a few things, and even in this conversation, Linda, that we still need to do a good job of getting rid of people thinking about. There are several ones. I'm super excited to see the trial results that you're going to have for the landscape fabric thing, because that has clearly been my number one pet peeve throughout this entire uh, converting what we're doing here over to flower production. The U.S parties map, the zonal map. When are we all going to get together and really sort of say it's useless? Yeah, it, it's a problem. I mean, the concept is really good, but the problem is, is that it doesn't get updated quickly enough. And again, it doesn't matter if you believe it or not, climate change is a real thing. You know, uh, you can't be, if, if you're going to be objectively scientific about things, you can't pick and choose what you are going to believe. <laughs> Just let the data show you. So we are experiencing climate change, and the fact is the hardiness zones are moving, and so zones are moving north. Um, yeah, I don't know. The, 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 the map is so far behind <laughs> where we are, it makes it really difficult to, to, um, to deal with. But I, I know there's some other maps. I think it's the Canadian one where they... Um, where they look at differences differently than, than the U.S. one does. And so it shows the zones, I think, a little bit more realistically. But the fact is it just takes forever to get new versions out. So I think one of my colleagues from the 2012 U.S. Uh, map came out. He was excited about the map coming out, and a week later he was saying something, something in, the, in our blog, like the new, the new hardiest map, new hardiest map is obsolete. And because, it, because it is, because it just, it's a snapshot, and we, we really can't use that so much. What we have to do, and it's easier now because you could find data on the web so easily, is, is pay attention to your own region's um, temperatures, the minimums and maximums, and use those things to make your decision. Well, and it, it's such a small part of a plant's story and the plant's capacity to do well or not do well oh, yeah. in your particular area of the world. There was a time, and, and I wanted to ask you this question because I remember it, and maybe I just imagined it, Linda, which, which could very well be possible. 
And this is going to get us into a very technical term that I think people are under familiar with. There was a moment where, if memory serves me, someone was working on like a transpiration rate oh, the for plants. Yes, the and grading them based upon that. First off, give us a good accessible definition of transpiration, why it's important, and what this guide was going to be for people. Okay, so the transpiration rate, it's called ET, the evapotranspiration rate, just has to do with the rate at which water moves through a plant. So in the soil, going through the roots, going up the stems or trunks, going out the leaves. That's the, that's the um, evaporation part. The transpiration part is moving it from roots to, to leaves, and the evaporation part is when it leaves leaves. So that's why it's evapotranspiration. And so what this this rate was supposed to do, this ET rate, was to, to, you know, have a number so that you could then figure out your irrigation requirements. And it was, first of all, I think done with turf grasses. And it's something that works pretty well if you are growing a monoculture, like lawn, and it's a very simple plant, like grass. The problem is, is you can't have an ET rate for a landscape because every plant is different. And your soils are going to be different, and things like wind and temperature and sun and shade are going to change that rate. So it, you know, it sounds great to have that. So you could have this ET rate. You could choose plants that all have the same ET rate. The fact is, is there is no one ET rate for, say, um, a rhododendron because it's going to it's going to vary so much with the environment. So it's one of those things where it's a, a neat idea, but there's absolutely no practical use to it other than growing monocultural crops or growing lawns. Well, and that was one of the things that's been so interesting that I don't know if people understand. When I add a new plant here, here's two of the things I'm first thinking of. Where's the plant originally from as a species? What's that soil like? And how does that translate to where I am? So what I always liked about the transpiration thought, just to have it in your mind is, is this a plant that's adapted to quickly move water from the roots to the leaves in hot, stressful parts of the year, which I know I have here? Do you think there's value in that for people? And this gets us back to maybe some of this, where you're getting your information from at the very beginning, Linda, that sort of understanding the plant's culture of where it's from and how it grows and does it, it is even remotely going to have the capacity to adapt to where you're trying to put it. Yeah, I think you you learn about it in the most logical way. Um, when you look at plant death, you know, the causes of plant death other than people doing things wrong, um, the two most common reasons plants die is because of temperature extremes or because of, of drought. So, you know, it's either, it's either water or temperature. So if you can see where something is originally from, and it's a, you know, it has similar uh, temperature minimum and maximum that you do, and if it is, um, you know, going to get similar rainfall, or if it doesn't get similar rainfall, if you can make sure you have irrigation, um, that's, the way, that's the way to do it. Root development is another thing, Linda, we've got to talk about. One of the 
I think the lack of understanding for for us is even when it's cold outside to us, it may not be cold outside for those roots. They may be doing something. Talk to us about just that general principle of most of what we see on the top of the plant isn't really telling us anything about what's sometimes going on with the plant at that time of year. Yeah, um, you're right. Even when it's cold, like where I am right now, where it's still snowing, um, and it's below freezing, but below the soil it is not. And part of that is because the snow is insulating it. But the, the biggest reason is because the soil volume is huge, and it's a huge heat sink. So it takes a lot of really cold temperatures to get it to freeze. And as long as the soil is not frozen, roots will continue to grow. Now, they grow slower when it's cold, um, but they don't ever go dormant. So unlike the top part of you know perennials and, and woody plants that do go dormant, um, the roots don't. And as long as it's warm enough, they continue to grow. So really important time for root establishment is during the winter because the resources are there. Um, any resources that they need are available to them because the rest of the plant is dormant. So yeah, it's um, it's uh, it's best time for, for plant establishment is actually in the fall, which is why I really promote fall planting as opposed to spring. I'm going to hit you with something that came across my email the other day, and it shocked me. And it, it's a relevant topic for us to touch on here. So in Alaska, there's actually been a bit of a push, and you probably have seen this, for people to start growing peonies. Mm-hmm. They, they, they're blooming in Alaska at a time of year where there aren't really peonies in the world in July and August. So they have this economic advantage to be able to sell these peonies in July and August. However, I got a direct message regarding a uh, peony farmer that had been up there and literally in one of their winters in the last few years, it had killed off a large portion of their peonies, which for those of you that don't know, peonies are extremely cold hardy and tolerant. And we just went through this polar vortex. You have to make the sound when you, when you talk about it, because as we all know, all storms need to be named now, and we have to create phrases to call them things. When we talk about cold damage, like that case in Alaska, what are we actually seeing happen to the plant? If it's in a case of like a peony or something like that, that is typically very cold hardy. What causes that worst case scenario, polar vortex kind of damage? Okay, well, it's not a simple, straightforward answer, but I can give you a pretty quick rundown. Um, the roots are the least hardy part because they never go dormant. So if you kill the roots, you've killed the plant. So if you have an unmanaged soil, in other words, it's bare soil and it gets really cold, your plant is going to be toast. So that may be why the peonies died. I don't know if he had them mulched or not, but I can pretty much assure you that if the roots, if the roots froze, the whole thing's dead. Um, the second uh, most vulnerable part are um, evergreen leaves. And, you know, those can super cool down to a, a certain amount, and that's a long topic, but it's kind of a cool one. And then um, the buds, the dormant buds are even more cold-hardy, and then the stems and trunks are the most cold-hardy. So you might have a freeze that damages leaves, but does not damage the woody part. 
And this happened a lot when I lived in Buffalo. So stuff that was covered with snow actually did quite well. But things that were exposed to colder temperatures, especially the wind that comes along with those colder temperatures, often had a lot of leaf damage. And that was because it got so cold and there was so much um, dehydration occurring that, that they just fried them. So that's what people can expect to see. If they see leaf damage, um, they should not cut things until the following spring. Give it a chance to come back, see what's still alive, because as I said, the leaves may all die on evergreens, but the, the stems and trunks may be just fine. Can you explain to us why it's so important not to cut them immediately? Well, there's a couple of reasons. One is because you might be cutting off perfectly good tissue. And secondly, when you open up that tissue to, you know, now it's now it's, now there's an open cut there. If it's still possibly going to be very cold, now you've just <laughs> made it even easier for that tissue to freeze. So if, if it's past the, the, the danger of a hard freeze, it's fine to pr- do pruning. I, I still wouldn't prune for this kind of damage yet. I'd wait till spring. But in, in general, pruning should be avoided if there's going to be any danger of a hard freeze uh, soon after pruning. I'm going to give you a new topic, Linda. I don't know if you've had this one come across your mind or not recently, but I did my best Linda Chalker Scott impersonation <laughs> over the last week. I had been getting a lot of comments about people having struggles with particular plants that struck me odd. One was actually in Connecticut, a woman who said, I just can't grow roses. And she was looking at pictures of my roses here and was like, wow, I wish I could grow them like that. And I would get these comments on some varying things. Well, recently I started talking because we were going to have this really dramatic temperature swing here in Tennessee where we had been in the 70s and then we were going to get down into the low teens in like less than a 24-hour period. And I wanted to show people the difference between soil temperature versus a container temperature. And then I also happened to mention in one of my Instagram stories that the same thing would hold true if you were doing a raised bed, that that would also have a different temperature than the native soil. And the woman in Connecticut direct messaged me and said, I think you just discovered why my roses have been dying, that I grow them all in three foot tall raised beds. Yep, that'll do it. <laughs> Good diagnosis, so, Steve. Thank you, Linda. I learned from the best. That, that was my goal with all of this over the last 10 or 12 years was just to get good at doing what you were already good at. So walk us through this. I, I found that sort of, um, I don't want to say comical because it sounds like I'm laughing at people, Linda, but I'm laughing with. Why do you think raised beds got so popular? Firstly, we'll put that out there in the universe. And then there was that disconnect of people not understanding and give us a bit of a definition too. I'm asking a lot of questions here in one swing, Linda. Um, Give us a bit of a talk of like soil temperature and the reflectivity of that based upon what it's in, container, ground, et cetera. Okay. Well, to get the first part on why raised beds are so popular, I think there's a couple of reasons. One is an accessibility reason. And especially as gardeners age, you know, they don't want to be on hands and knees so much and they are fine sitting on a stool, but they don't want to be on the ground. And so raised beds are easier for older people or people with disabilities to use. So there's that. And another reason is because it goes back to something you said, people think they have crappy soil. 
So they build raised beds where they can fill it with something else than their native soil. Um, so those, I think, are the two main reasons. And if a, if, a, if a raised bed is filled with native soil, which is actually what our soil scientists recommend when you're planting into a raised bed, you should just use your native soil rather than mixing in a whole bunch of other stuff. Um, it, it will have closer to the same type of freezing tolerance that your native soil does if, it's, if, it, if there's nothing on the bottom keeping it from, you know, from being connected to that, that soil. It's going to freeze earlier because it's still you know, above and it's going to be hit by winds and things. But the problem with a lot of these medias that people put into their raised beds, they're very fluffy and it doesn't have much ability to um, moderate temperature like soil does. So the fluffy stuff freezes pretty fast because there's usually a lot of water in there and it's able to freeze. So that's what happens. You have this, you know, fluffy media, you know, very organic, rich uh, media, and it will freeze pretty darn fast. And that's what will happen with, with raised beds. There also is, and I still see this, and maybe I feel like because I've been doing this a while, Linda, I'm a little like, why are people still doing this? The differences between people understanding soil versus media, what they're buying. Are you, as I am, I go into big box stores, even independent garden centers, and I am shocked at the amount of so-called soil products or potting mix or all of the things they're labeling things as of now. I mean, it's just like the market is so saturated with all of these confusing products for people. Oh, and it just gets worse. I keep on thinking we've finally reached the pinnacle, you know, when I see 20 different kinds of bags and stuff. But no, next time I go in, there's 30 different bags of stuff. Um, because people, again, think that they can get something better out of a bag than they can out of their yard. And it's just, it's, it's marketing, it's perception. It's that appeal to something simple and natural, even though these things are anything but simple and natural, and there's a huge cost associated with, with both the materials and shipping them. And I, I, really, I really dislike these products a lot. I don't buy any of them. Um, I'll back off that a little bit and say for my bog garden, I buy um, you know, that core, and I use that as, as, instead of peat moss. But if you look at those bags, I mean, they're full of things like bat guano and kelp meal and peat moss. And all of these are harvested from natural ecosystems that in some cases are being destroyed to make this product. So not only are they, you know, <laughs> nothing like soil because there is no soil in them. So call them potting soil is a complete oxymoron, but they're ecologically devastating in their harvesting. So I really wish gardeners would look at the bags, see what's in them. If it's made with recycled products from, from crop production, that's great. If it's stuff that comes from another ecosystem and is there to just so you can have it in a bag, I think that's just environmentally irresponsible. The amount of magic elixirs that are out there on the market from compost tea to soil products is just amazing to me. I, I want to wrap up and I'm going to throw a theory at you here, Linda, and we're going to sort of close with this because this is more of an abstract, esoteric thought. I struggle sometimes in later this year, I'm doing quite a few talks for some different groups. And 
I had it said to me recently, and I, I wanted to touch base with you to see if maybe you've had this said to you, Austin. You know, Steve, I, I love a lot of what you're saying, but sometimes you come across a little negative. And at first, I didn't know how to take it. Uh, but now we like you. That's what was said to me. And how do you and how have you, Linda, because you've been walking this path longer than I have. How do you bridge this gap between trying to tell people there's maybe no one on the planet who's more enamored by nature and the magic of it and the whimsy of it than myself or someone like yourself? But I have to balance that with practical facts, proven facts, and not just, you know, gobbledygook. How have you walked this path, Linda? Well, there's a couple things that I've done because you're right. The same thing, you know, people that haven't heard me before when I've gone to give talks, um, it, it can be kind of jarring because it's not what they're expecting to have, you know, some of their favorite myths being busted, um, albeit as gently as I can. And there's two things. One is that I try to always remember to tell them I made these mistakes too. And I made them with a PhD in horticulture. It's because the information wasn't out there. We didn't know any better. And we were just working off anecdotal information. So, you know, putting yourself in the same position as I did this too. But then I found better information that's actually science-based. That helps. The second thing I always try to, to bring into it is, is some semblance of humor, which I can tell you do anyway. But one of my favorite things to do when I'm talking about the dangers of taking a correlation, you know, two things that happen to be occurring together, and turning into causation by referring to a website that, that I um, don't know if you've seen before. It's called Spurious Correlations. And if you Google Spurious Correlations, you'll find this guy's website. And he does these magnificent charts of correlations between things like, and my favorite one I always use is number of people. Uh, consume cheese in the U.S., per capita consumption of cheese consumption in the U.S., correlated almost to 100% with the number of people who died in the U.S. by becoming entangled in their bed sheets. So when people see that, they laugh. You can't help but laugh because it's hilarious. And obviously one isn't causing the other, but this just drives home the point that just because you see, you think you see a change in your plants when you're using compost tea, or you think you see a change when you're using Dawn dish soap as, a, as an insecticide, or whatever it is you're doing. It's, it's only an anecdotal observation. It's not causation. And you don't know until you actually test it. And that is such a struggle for what, and talking to this subject very candidly. I see a new wave of people getting very excited about plants through social media, in particular through this flower lens because of one very popular Pacific Northwest-based Instagram account, Linda. I see a lot of people getting excited about it. And that's fantastic. And I have, like yourself, have spent a large chunk of my life now trying to get people excited about plants. But what does concern me here, and I want to see if you have the same concern, is that we are maybe repeating some of the mistakes of the past. We're getting people interested, but then we're sort of filling them with a lot of this gobbledygook and this real non-factual, non-fundamental-based information. And I'm afraid that these people are going to be into it 
be passionate, be energetic, and then feel like they failed because the information wasn't fundamentally sound. And then they go running to the hills and never want to have anything to do with plants again. (laughs) So I had the perfect fix and it's free, costs nothing, and it's science-based. And I don't know if you've you've found this yet because there's so many myriad places that I have put things, but we have a a peer-reviewed extension publication that's called Scientific Literacy for the Citizen Scientist. And it helps people figure out if the information that they're reading or hearing about is is sound or not. It it allows you to start um, objectively analyzing it and asking the right questions to figure out, is this good stuff or is it crap? It is our version of fake news yeah. in the horticulture world, exactly. for sure. And unfortunately, our fake news sometimes comes with a brilliant photo of a flower attached to it. So it may be even more compelling <laughs> yeah. than the Russian bots. It may be more powerful. Let me wrap up with this, Linda. First off, I already thanked you once. I'm going to thank you twice. Your work, I, I still feel 10, 12 years later is some of the most influential of anyone out there uh, that I've ever read. And I've had an opportunity to talk with people like Michael Durr and a lot of very well-respected people within the horticulture world. But I always have come back to your information as a source. So for anyone out there in the universe who is even barely interested in plants, the Google search of Linda Chalker Scott and all of her work should be in an immediate must-do, must-read for you. Talk to me about, I know you at one point had done actually a course that was available. And then what is the best way for people to find all of the great Linda Chalker Scott information in the world? Oh, geez. Well, like you said, if you Google the last name and you do it with a hyphen and you have quotation marks around it, make sure you spell it right. Um, I'm the only one out there. So everything that you find under Chalker Scott is me, which just makes it simple. Um, you'll, you can find my university website that way. You'll find the garden professor's blog that way. You'll find a Facebook group that way. And, um, actually there's a couple things course wise. Um, I mean, I used to teach college. I don't anymore because uh, I do extension outreach, but, um, I don't know if you're familiar with the great courses. Yeah. yeah. I, ha- I have a series on the great courses now, which is, which is awesome. Cool. And, and by the way, and, and I actually, I, believe the price point of it, Linda, was not going to make me have to take out a second mortgage. Well, yeah, that's true because if you wait till it's on sale, it's really very, very, very reasonable. And then this fall, um, I'm going to start a online course for University of Massachusetts Amherst. So, and they have an online, you know, sustainability, um, you know, sustainable agriculture class. Or, or course. And so I'm going to be doing a class for them on landscape plant selection and management, which is what I used to teach in college. Which is fantastic. And then you have a book that's going to be Pacific Northwest based, you said earlier too, about like native plants. All these people that think you don't like native plants, like you said, Linda, this is totally going to blow their minds. They're going to have no idea where you're coming from now. They're going to be like, wait a second. I thought she was against the native plants and now she has a book coming out. What gives? Yep. It's fun. Just keep people, keep people guessing. The only dreams I've had have been in the daytime Anything to get away from the straight line the straight line that I walk With all the medicated masses 
creative minds outlined in chalk. I've always bordered on the edge of something. My mind goes where very few dare to tread. Is it wrong that I'm dying, trying hard to live? So bend and break my back for a world that just won't give a little. Safe inside, no. 